Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. These are the prison epistles. In 1880s England, William and Catherine Booth um, set out on a mission to try and bring Christ into the broken areas of their city. Um, really specifically wanting to bring Christ to the gamblers, the alcoholics, and the prostitutes in their cities. And as they saw Jesus begin to change lives, um, they, they began to have a hard time integrating those people into, into the established church. They were Methodists and bringing, uh, bringing these broken people who, who, whose lives were, were really just beginning to start to turn around into the established church. They just really didn't find welcome. And so William and Catherine Booth decided to start their own church. Uh, their own church were, were these kind of people who, whom God was working in um, would be welcomed and accepted. Um, William Booth once said that he wanted to spend his life making other people right. And so they started a church, uh, seeing themselves really as, as an army fighting against the darkness. And, and they called their church the Salvation Army. Uh, William Booth said uh, once that no one gets a blessing if they have cold feet and nobody ever got saved well, they have toothaches. And so they set about this mission of caring for both the physical and the spiritual and seeking to love these broken people and bringing them into the kingdom. Uh, and they started a global movement that we're still seeing. Even, even in our town today, the Salvation Army has a presence, you know, 150 years later. Um, each year, uh, the Salvation Army churches, they would hold an international conference. And one year, uh, William Booth was, was quite old and he, he was ill and wasn't able to make it to the convention. Um, but he sent his message. He cabled his message to them. And his convention message that year was one word. Others. That was his entire convention speech. One word. Others. Paul is writing the book of Philippians from prison, but we see that his heart isn't just for himself, um, but for the churches that he's planted, and particularly he loves this Philippian church. So we're going to grab the text here in uh, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Uh, Paul saying, hey, if God has been doing a work in your life, if you see the work of Jesus going on in your life, then, then unify together around that, having unity in, in theology, unity in love, and unity in mission. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. So the selfish ambition is, is using other people for your own gain. Um, conceit. Conceit is an excessive opinion of one's own worth. And so he's saying that's how the world operates. That, and that even might come naturally to us in our sinfulness. But we need to be different. Look instead to the interests of, in the words of William Booth, others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And we're about to, to, to enter into what many scholars believe was a hymn. So maybe Paul uh, didn't particularly write this hymn. Maybe it was something that was already circulating in the churches, and he's reminding them. Maybe Paul wrote the hymn here. 
Um, but there's this hymn that really, uh, for Paul in this letter, sums up what Jesus is all about and how we're to respond to Jesus. And so this is really the centerpiece of the letter of Philippians, right here. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, the English translation here is a bit tough. The Greek word morphe um, almost makes it sound in some ways like he was in the form of God, but he wasn't really God. But that's not the case at all. In fact, this word morphe means that he possesses the characters through and through, in and out, that he was in fact fully God and in the form also uh, as a man. He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Another interesting word there is is grasped is uh, harpagmos. Um, I, I think the, the English word harpoon kind of comes from this word. Harpagmos is the, an aggressive grabbing. It's, it's a grasping. It's a, a reaching. There's this aggression to it. Um, and Paul's saying that even though Jesus was himself God in human form, he didn't consider equality with God, his rights as, as, as the king of the universe, he didn't consider it a thing that should be that he needed to grasp, that he needed to, to shoot, harpoon, to pull in. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. An, an ancient declaration of Jesus in, in his sacrifice and his humility, that even though he was God himself, he didn't come down demanding a throne and demanding worship and service. Instead, he humbled himself to serve us. He, he, he was the one person who, had, uh, who should have been able to grab hold of his rights, but he released them all heading to the cross in order and humility to serve us, to show us the true nature of his love and his glory there on the cross itself. The king becomes a slave, the divine putting on flesh. And we see this promise that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the truth there is that someday everyone will. That's the promise that we have, and it's either going to be bowing our knees in reverence and allegiance or in defeat before Jesus. You see, this image that we have of Jesus is not the full picture. In fact, it's the exception to the rule of who Jesus is. Jesus, we see God the Son created all things. All things were made through Him. God the Son in eternity, the second member of the Trinity eternally God. And then also we see him when he comes back leading the angel armies, riding before the, the host of angels as the one who sits on the throne of the universe. And that is the cosmic Jesus that we have, the beginning and the end. And we see here is his, is, is his humiliation, his, his humbling, his service. This, the, him, Jesus in the flesh, Jesus on the cross, is the very small exception to the rule which shows the magnitude of his love and grace. 
because that's not the full extent of who he was. And the, the image that we have here of Jesus who humbles himself even to the point of the cross, which was so uh, atrocious in that day and age, it wasn't even polite to speak of it. The word excruciating uh, was, was, was a word that came about to try and describe the experience of being crucified. Excruciating of the cross. It needed its own vocabulary. That's how horrendous it was. And there's this, this, this real contrast that we see between the image of the king of kings versus in that day, particularly in Philippi, which was a Roman colony uh, and also a very important Roman colony named after uh, Alexander the Great's father. And, and it was a place of a great battle in Roman history. And a lot of Roman uh, soldiers retired in Philippi. So, so the Roman uh, Caesar cult was really big in Philippi. And so we have this contrast between Jesus who's lowly, broken, serving on the cross versus the emperor, right? Who, who in his, is, is with, with, reigned with an iron fist, who demanded allegiance, demanded loyalty, that, that Caesar operated with opulence and pageantry while Jesus had humility and meekness. And, and Jesus' death was on the instrument of Roman shame. And so there's this contrast that he's setting up where Jesus is Lord. And here's what it looks like. Very different than the experience of Caesar trying to force his way into lordship. Christ deserved worship and glory, but instead he surrendered his right to get it. In love, he lowered himself and became a servant. He received our punishment as our king. He laid his life down so we could pick ours up. And and this is the image which Paul wants to paint as the centerpiece of the church. That if if this is Jesus, this is how we are also to live. That this is the example that God has laid out for us that we are to follow. Paul expects voluntary voluntary obedience to the pattern in this pattern of the believer's existence too, that this is who Jesus is and this is who we are to be as well, putting the needs of others ahead of ourselves, not operating, as he says, with selfish ambition or conceit, but he says here, in humility count others more significant. How can we do that? We can do that because we have Jesus who's done it on our behalf, who's put our needs ahead of his own. And that's the call of what it means to live actually as the church. It's not, what can I get out of you? But instead, what can I do for you? I think we're to bow our knees to each other and not just our heads to God. And that's, I think, where where William Booth's message of others needs to really hit us. Of, of it's, this life is not just about me, that I have a responsibility. Thankfully, Jesus took care of my needs. Jesus is watching out for me. Jesus has given me more than I can ask or imagine. And the responsibility now for me is to respond by doing likewise to others. This is a picture of what faith is supposed to look like, modeled after Jesus himself. And the rest of Philippians is really all about how we live this out in practicality. How do we live out this hymn, this image of Jesus, the servant king? 
who laid his life down, putting our needs ahead of his own, instead of grasping at that which he was owed and due, instead in meekness, he let it go and went to the cross. Uh, And so today, something really practical is, is who is someone? Who is an other for you today that you could possibly serve? What is something that you can do for someone else? Who is a person that you, instead of using them for your ends, could actually sacrifice something yourself just for the sake of the other. And it's those little disciplines and practices, if we can intentionally start to build those into our day as we perhaps put our feet down on the ground as you're getting out of the car today, or, or perhaps as you're getting up from the, 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 the breakfast table, of making a commitment today of saying, God, I want to do this for someone today. And as we begin to implement those practices, which might start off very difficult it might seem awkward. It might seem embarrassing. I don't, I don't know. But as we, as we begin to implement that more and more, we begin to see the fruit that comes from it and it becomes easier and easier and more part of our just daily life. So will you implement that discipline today and see how it goes? Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for this hymn. That the truth that you came to earth taking on flesh in order to serve us. Help us, God, to, uh, to see it, to love it, and to follow you into it, because you also promise in this upside-down way that this is where we find life. So God, give us the courage to think not just of ourselves, but the needs of others ahead of our own. Thank you that you love us in this way. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, Once again, uh, as we go on in this week, know that we are for you. We're with you. And if there's anything that we need to help in this journey as we walk alongside you, please um, just let us know. See you soon.